Hello, welcome to Injury Prevention Podcasts. My name is Rod McClure. I'm editor of the BMJ journal Injury Prevention, and today I'll be speaking with Dr. Deborah Azrael from the Harvard School of Public Health. Deb is an American public health researcher. She is the research director of the Harvard Injury Control Research Center, and for many years has been a major figure involved in the firearm-related research conducted at Harvard and in collaboration with colleagues throughout the country. Our discussion today will essentially focus on the origin story, firearm-related harm as a public health issue in the United States. Hello, Deborah. Tell me a little bit about the work group you're working with now. So as has been true for the past 20 years, um, the the core of our group at the Injury Control Research Center, um, sort of initially at Harvard now, a collaboration between Harvard and Northeastern University, has consisted of David Hemingway, um, an economist, uh, Matt Miller and I, and a woman named Kathy Barber. Both Matt and I sort of fell into the work um, and into the Injury Center through taking uh, David's micro intro microeconomics class. Me as a master's student and, and Matt as a, a doctoral student sought out opportunities to work with him. How was it that Matt was in the class? Matt who's an oncologist, had taken um, a step away from doing on- oncology and decided to, to, to go to the, to the doctoral program that sat at the School of Public Health, a, an SCD program at the same time that I, who had come out of the master's program at the School of Public Health, um, had, was just starting the, um, uh, the, the PhD program, the health policy PhD program at Harvard, which is a joint venture between the School of Public Health and the School of Government and the Business School and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. So he and I were in different programs, but in in sort of parallel cohorts that crossed over a lot. So Matt and I, um, A, were both working on on gun-related projects with David, and B, became sort of fast friends and collaborators ourselves. So you had a public health professional and uh, an oncologist and an economist coming together to do gun research. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Have I got the yep. story? Yeah, the three of us sort of came together and then shortly thereafter, because we were, um, you know, because a crucial issue in, in any sort of gun research is having decent quality data with which to do it, um, you know, we got involved in sort of thinking about surveillance for firearm injuries and Kathy came out of that that field having developed a, a firearm injury surveillance program for the state of Massachusetts. And so she joined the group pretty early on. Kathy came from farm injury into gun research. So tell me all about why did you have come from such different areas of backgrounds and be passionate very early on by the sound of things in an area of research, which there weren't a lot of other researchers in at the time. I think, you know, the, the initial forays were really in many ways down to down to David, who, you know, as an economist had been interested for, for a long time in 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 injury and in in the motor vehicle field and in, in fires both. Um, and in the so we're talking nineteen ninety-two, ninety-three it was sort of a natural extension. You know, he'd been thinking about what was then the leading cause of injury death among um, among folks in the U.S., that is to say motor vehicles. And it, it was a natural extension to start thinking about 
the second leading mechanism of death, which was which was firearms. And the work really started because there were a couple of surveys that people were doing in which they asked questions about personal firearm ownership that nobody had really looked at. And so we began, he began, and then we began to look at those, thinking about what predicted uh, unsafe storage of, of firearms, which was something that you could look at in those surveys. And we really branched off. Generally speaking, it was a period of, of sort of burgeoning interest in, in firearms in the U.S., sort of injury coming under the public health umbrella and mechanisms of injury, therefore being interesting and, and guns, you know, were this really under understudied, but astonishingly common mechanism of, of death. There seems a bit of a story there uh, around data and coming across something that was not exactly uh, expected, I guess, but it, the, the size of the problem and you decided to pursue that a little bit. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, the, those initial explorations where you realized that you know this this mechanism of injury that was resulting in forty thousand people a year dying, really, what we knew in the early nineties was available from a very limited number of sources, and and so you know as soon as you as soon as we started and and others too started thinking about the role of firearms in morbidity and mortality in the U.S., it really begged. Better data, and so you know, pretty quickly, what the work we started to do was to try to 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 seek funding, and 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 ultimately, we were relatively successful to do to collect our own data. And so, you know, from the the mid '90s on, we were doing our own surveys of of gun owners, um, and then working, you know, ultimately a couple of years later to to try to help. Um, develop a, a national surveillance system to collect data, um, not not just on homicide, which was you know which was being fairly intensively studied in the U.S. in the early '90s because there was a homicide epidemic. But the more you sort of looked at gun homicide, what what one realized, what we realized was that guns were uh, actually responsible for being used more often, even than in homicides and suicides, and there really wasn't much of a literature access to firearms and in households was leading to to really quite remarkably elevated risk um not just of of homicide but of of suicide as well and and so we although we've done all sorts of work over the years you know we we, our group really developed uh, a particular interest in and expertise in and that's something i'd like to uh push a few more questions on if I could, because it seems to me that the uh, case control and the uh, randomized controlled trial and various other epidemiological analytic studies uh, capture imagination, but the fundamental driver of our ability to address public health issues really starts at the descriptive surveillance study, as far as I can see, and you've spent a lot of time refining this sort of uh, methodology and coming up over a very long period of time with some sound data in an area where the data has been a bit sketchy in the past. Can you tell us a little bit about your surveys? One, you know, the sort of first issue that that we faced, you know, in the case control studies, you've got 60 people, you've got 100 people, and you're doing direct ascertainment with, you know, with um, either with your controls, proxies for controls, or proxies for the dead person about whether or not there was a firearm at home. But what we, you know, soon came to to, to 
realizes that in the U.S. there, because we don't register guns and, and we don't know who has a gun, a, sort of a fundamental, deeply problematic gap um, in in our ability to understand the role of firearms in mortality was that we didn't have good measures of of gun ownership. Um, the General Social Survey has asked about firearm ownership since the since about 1972, but it's a, a small survey. So we, you know, we had a time series that says it said at the national level, X percent of households and, and Y percent of individuals um, had guns, but but there, you couldn't disaggregate really at all. I mean, in, in theory, the, the general social survey allows you to understand how many guns there are in a, in a census region, but not at any more granular level. And, and so, so we did a couple of things. I mean, one was to do surveys our, ourselves and to ask random samples at, at that time in random digital telephone surveys, you know, do you have a gun? And we were able to make estimates of, of gun ownership and the like. Um, but the work that I'm proud of that we did was a little bit later to try to identify and, and ultimately to identify a, a good proxy for gun ownership so that you could think about gun prevalence, not just at the national level or at the regional level, but at the state level or the city level, you know, at, at much smaller units of, of aggregation. Um, so in in Massachusetts, where I am, where there are not very many guns, maybe uh, two out of 10 suicides um, it involve the use of a gun, whereas in a state like Montana, um, about, 70% of suicides involve a gun um, compared to the national average, which is about 50. And it turns out that that fraction correlates really well with the best measures we have of gun ownership as, as determined by a, by a survey. And so what that allowed us to do, having this proxy then allowed us to take a look at, at using sort of descriptive ecologic data it's fairly straightforward. You know, if you erase states by how how high gun prevalence is in those states from low to high, how does that relate to rates of suicide in those places and rates of firearm suicide in particular? And what we were able to do over, you know, probably a dozen studies over 10 years was to to provide really strong ecologic level evidence that where there are more guns, more people die by suicide and what drives that difference in suicide rates is differences in firearm suicide rates. And so when you look at non-firearm suicide rates across US states, they're really pretty flat. Um, you know, Massachusetts non-firearm suicide rate is not much higher than or lower than, than Montana's or California's or any other states. What really differentiates states in the US is their rate of firearm suicide. And, and what you see is that you know, overall, what will determine a, a, a state's or a county's or a city's suicide rate is um, is this measure of, of the availability of guns um, at the at the household. Right, and then you moved on to understanding the importance of storage in that context to limit that's accessibility, right. I suppose. That that's right. That that's a harder problem to tackle. Um, from surveys of sort of on average how often people store guns um, unsafely. So the safest way to store guns if you choose to have a gun is to have the gun unloaded and locked up with the ammunition stored 
separately. So, and the, the least safe way is to have a gun loaded and unlocked, so readily accessible. And, and so we've done surveys, others have done surveys that, that show that about one in three U.S. households with a gun stores at least one gun loaded and unlocked, you know, sort of in a nightstand, you know, on top of the refrigerator by the front door. But, but we don't yet have data sets that are big enough that collect data on, on gun storage to, to, to look at gun storage by state. But we know that there's a, there's a lot of variation in the fraction of households that store guns. Risk of suicide is highest among households where guns are stored, loaded, and unlocked. So, Debbie, you've described a sizable problem and many years of concentrated and focused effort on elucidating the problem and trying to articulate where opportunities for prevention might be. Do you think there's a breakthrough just around the corner or do you see this as a long process over many years ahead? And if so, what are the areas you really think we should be working in? I, I wish I could say that there was a, a breakthrough coming. Um, there, there certainly has been a breakthrough. Major institutions, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, have taken on reducing access to lethal means as an important policy. Um, focus of theirs, the Veterans Administration, um, you know, facing a, a, a very public and, and, and real sort of crisis of, of suicide, particularly among young veterans. You know, the reducing access to firearms is perhaps our most potent, you know, it is the intervention most likely to actually yield reductions in suicide in the short run. Um, as, as we do other things to sort of try to improve mental health and well-being and all the rest. Um, but we don't know very much, and there haven't been very many studies that have looked at how do you actually convince people to reduce access to guns. You know, in, in my group, uh, Kathy in particular has focused a lot on developing trainings and the like about, for counseling at-risk people about their access to lethal means and recommending, you know, that a friend, you know, if you're going through a hard time or then think about giving your gun to a friend to hold on to until you feel better. If you have a kid who's at risk, um, you know, think about removing the gun from the house while they're having a hard time or store it better. I mean, we, we sort of have developed the messages and done a lot of work to promote and, and to, to, to educate people, but there are very few studies that have looked at the effect of counseling people on access to lethal means on whether or not they actually change the way they store their, their firearms or medications or whatever, let alone whether there's any downstream reduction in, in rates of, of, of suicide. So, you know, the breakthrough has been to, I guess, to position us as a field to take on this next big, big challenge, which I think will be a, is a difficult one, which is how do you talk to, to, to gun owners about their own risk of suicide or their family's risk of suicide and, and provide them with the kind of information they need to allow them to, to, to make decisions about how to keep those guns away from people who may be at risk. And, and listening to you, it does make it really clear to me that this isn't a single issue issue it's it's got so many component parts and you, it's not going to be a case like we imagine scientists sitting in a room coming up with a discovery you seem to be describing a lot of partners a lot of 
constituencies, a lot of people you're working with, a lot of interests that you need to work with rather than uh, work on your own. Yeah, and, and all within the context, we, we did a survey um, in, in 2015 where, in which we asked people, as others have done before us, you know, do you think that a firearm in the home increases, increases the risk of suicide, decreases the risk of suicide, or makes no difference? And you know, what we found was that, about, that overall, about one in six U.S. adults believes that a firearm in the home increases the risk of suicide. And when you look at gun owners, about 6% of gun owners, um, so one in 15, I guess. Um, when you look at, at people who say that they're healthcare pr practitioners, maybe one in five thinks that a gun in the home increases the risk of suicide. And, and so one thing we're doing in this upcoming survey, which I think will be really helpful, is asking people to try to break that down for us. You know, does a gun in the home increase the risk of suicide for somebody who's, uh, for, for a child, for someone with dementia, for someone who has an alcohol or substance abuse problem, for someone who's going through a hard time like with a job loss, so that we can try to identify times in people's lives where the proposition that's been sort of established does in fact increase the risk of suicide, you know, from two to five times, um, you know, how, where, where are the moments in which people may be open to that information and, and to think about not only gun owners, but mental health clinicians and teachers and non-gun owners who who may know people who are at risk of suicide or who may consider buying a gun themselves and you know just trying to figure out how to get people to actually appreciate the real risks and and how accessible to to, to make it if you were to have access to the resources required over the next 10 years with colleagues throughout the country, where do you think the really important research needs to focus? With, with the caveat that here I'm really talking about, about suicide and not mm -hmm. about, you know, the other, you know, not about homicide, not about, about you know, assault of injury. Um, you know, there's this literature out there that really convincingly shows that, that if you can reduce access to a highly lethal, commonly used method of suicide, suicide rates fall. Underlying suicidal behavior doesn't change, but suicide rates fall. And we, you know, you see that in Sri Lanka with pesticides where you could just change the types of pesticides that were allowed to be sold. And they, you know, you change them to be less toxic, fewer people die. Famous, you know, story in Great Britain of when household gas became less toxic, contained less carbon monoxide, suicide rates throughout the UK fell sort of in lockstep to where this new this less toxic gas was introduced. The sort of one example that's out there right now for, for firearms is a, a little study they did in the Israeli military where they realized that there were soldiers who were, who were dying by suicide at a rate that was greater than the population rate. And they looked at the data and realized this was mostly young soldiers who were taking their guns home with them on the weekend and they were killing themselves while they were off base with their service weapons. And they made this sort of very simple change, which was to say, you can't bring your gun home on the weekend anymore. And suicide rates among young Israeli soldiers fell sort of immediately. Uh, and um, we don't have a US study like the, like the Israeli study to, to point to. And so, you know, I think what we need 
to do is to learn how to talk to people about access to firearms. And then we need big enough studies that look at suicide as an outcome. And we need, you know, uh, David Hemingway likes to say, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom. We need lots and lots of people to, to think as creatively as they can about how to have conversations with gun owners and prospective gun owners about the decisions they make about their guns and their, their challenges to doing that. But, but I think that's what we need to do. Thank you, Deb. We've been listening today to Dr. Deborah Azrael from the Harvard School of Public Health's Department of Health Policy and Management. For further information on issues relating to injury prevention, please visit our website at injuryprevention.bmj.com. Remember, you can subscribe to the Injury Prevention Podcast in your favourite platform or app and have it automatically downloaded to your device each month.